So, you know, people were expected to live, I think it was about 10 or 12 years um, in retirement in the 70s. Now that figure's above 20. Um, and these are all years where, you know, people are, are healthy and, and consuming. I mean, it's a fantastic story as a society. We haven't yet figured out how to pay for it all. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. In this episode, I talk about tax reform with my colleague Simon Cowan, who is Research Director at the Centre for Independent Studies. There's widespread agreement the Australian tax system needs an overhaul, but there's a big debate over what reform should look like. It's a debate that's heated up ever since the federal government redesigned a legislated tax cut early this year, the so-called Stage 3 tax cut. It redesigned the tax cut so it provides more relief for lower-income earners and less relief for higher-income earners. The government has been accused of class warfare by the opposition, but the government claims it's doing this because economic circumstances have changed and that this is the best way to deliver cost-of-living relief. Now there's speculation the government may change other tax laws, particularly those regarding the taxation of investment properties. It's going to be a highly charged debate on the Australian tax system this year for sure. This episode, Simon cuts through the spin from both sides and provides some great insights into what tax changes would be good for the Australian economy and community. As always, I'd be interested to hear what you think about the issues we discuss in this show, so please get in touch and share your thoughts. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Righto, we'd better get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Simon Cowan from the CIS. Simon, good to have you back on the show. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Excellent, Simon. You've written a really hard-hitting piece. This was uh, one of your regular op-eds in the Canberra Times, if I remember, if, if I forgot that right. Yeah, absolutely. Channeled a bit of my uh, inner anger at the tax changes. Yeah, so Labor's tax backflip all the easier against an opposition with no spine. So, yeah, you basically rip into both uh, the governing Party, so the Labor Party, which is in government at the federal level in Australia now, and the opposition. So the opposition originally opposed this, uh, what they what became known as the Stage Three tax cuts, which involves a flattening of the the tax, uh, the progressivity of the tax system, getting rid of one of the tax brackets, and there was an accusation that it provided too much tax relief at the top end. So yeah, I'm keen to get your thoughts on why you've uh, you know you've come out strong about uh, on this issue. I'm just wondering, uh, should the stage three tax cuts have gone ahead as proposed, or would you have been willing to have accepted some changes in the interest of cost of living relief? Look, I mean, so I think my ideal situation is to add the labour lower income tax cuts on top of existing stage three package. So I think, you know, one of the things it's quite reasonable for governments to do, especially when they've got a surplus, is distribute some of that surplus to 
uh, its taxpayers. And so I would have been okay with a change that resulted in, in an additional tax relief being provided to people in the middle income brackets. Uh, I think there were other potential options that could have been added on. So, for example, if they wanted to index the tax brackets uh, while also perhaps reducing some of the benefit uh, from the stage three cuts, then that might have been acceptable too, because at least then it would have fixed the problem that the stage three tax cuts were designed to resolve. But at the end of the day, my biggest concern is that this entire debate has been filled with terrible information, terrible assessment. Um, Labor and Liberals have both uh, taken what are, I think, quite um, cynical and short-term political positions. And as a result, I think they've, um, they've badly mismanaged the handling of this whole tax process. Right. Oh, okay. So what were the what were those elements of the stage three tax cut you liked? Did you like the fact that it was becoming less progressive? Is that yeah? So I think there's there's probably two elements that I thought were were worth preserving and worth pursuing. So flattening the tax brackets, I think, was a good idea. Um, I mean, a number of people in sort of pantheon of classic liberal ideas have suggested flat taxes. Um, that appears to be politically difficult to do, but I would have certainly advocated for flattening the tax structure um, to a large extent where most people who were working were facing the same marginal rate. Obviously, that system remains progressive. It's not a regressive system, but it would flatten the brackets. But I think the bigger issue here is that people in the top quarter or so of the income distribution hadn't seen any substantial return of bracket creep since about 2010. So there was a small benefit provided as a result of moving stage two forward during the pandemic. Uh, but since then, inflation has been running at 7 and 8%. So we've got this enormous ongoing impact of bracket creep um, that has been focused on the top end of the, the distribution. We saw taxes cut at the lower ends repeatedly in 2012-13. The carbon tax was introduced, that compensation was, was retained. We saw, you know, the initial stage one benefits. We saw the introduction of low and medium income tax offset. So there's been a lot of bracket creep return across other parts of distribution, but none of it has been returned to the top end. And, and I think, you know, stepping beyond the politics of just this tax cut, we've now established a principle that says that higher income people no longer deserve to be compensated for bracket creep. And I think that's a terrible principle to introduce into our tax system. Bracket creep is an unfair, it's a it's a stealth tax, mm. and it shouldn't be allowed to just run rampant because you've got a, a fascination and a fetish of higher income tax. Yeah, so bracket creep is the process whereby, uh, due to inflation, you end up in a higher tax bracket, even though your real income may not be any higher in real terms because it's just the effects of inflation and suddenly the government's getting more money from you. that You're facing a higher tax rate. That's right. So your real, your real income stays the same, but your tax bill goes up. As a result, your disposable income, your living standards go down. Uh, that happens every year. Bracket creep wasn't a massive issue 
um, in the latter half of the 2010s because inflation was so low. Uh, but since then, and the massive injection of stimulus from the Reserve Bank and the government in 2020 and 21 drove inflation up to almost double digits across the Western world. And at that point, um, bracket creeps taking a significant hit on people's incomes. And, and you know, stage three, I think we've got some work coming out soon that analyzes the, the cumulative impact of that. Stage three didn't return all of that bracket creep that had accumulated over the course of those 10, 14 years. Um, and now that compensation has been cut in half. Right. Okay. So this is CIS. We'll have some research coming out on that. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got some some really good work being done by some of my colleagues that looks at um, and try looks at the issue of bracket creep, but also tries to correct the the narrative that's been pushed forward of um, these the stage three tax cuts costing hundreds of billions of dollars, based on the incredibly unrealistic assumption that there would be no return of bracket creep for more than two decades. Hmm. That, uh, yeah. that was just a, I mean, that was a ridiculous assumption to make. It was made at the request of a political party that has a vested interest in higher taxes. And it's been accepted wholesale by the media as, oh, the state street tax cuts cost all this. Um, and we saw, you know, the height of absurdity when inflation went up to 7 or 8% uh, and all this bracket creep was ripping off people. It's, oh, the cost of stage three has gone up another $40 yeah, billion. Yeah. Dollars. What, what an absurdity. Yeah, yeah. So it, this is one of the reasons. I mean, you know, the bigger reason is the higher commodity prices and high corporate profits, but this is, it's made a contribution to the budget surplus that the Treasurer has declared, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and Australia is incredibly dependent on income tax. I mean, we do receive significant swings in revenue as a result of commodity prices in particular, but Australia globally is, is highly dependent on income tax, and as a result, bracket creep is highly beneficial to the government. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why, apart from a very short experimentation with uh, indexation in, if you give us, 70s or 80s, um, it's never really seriously been considered. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to ask you about the, the structure of our tax system in a moment. But before we get there, I want to ask about uh, this point about having a flatter tax system. And because you know, equity is a, is, is a, there are equity principles with tax design, there's vertical equity, horizontal equity. Um, this this relates to vertical equity and this idea that if you have a greater ability to pay, you pay more, which, you know, there's a community acceptance of that or there's community support for that. Um, but from what do you see as the advantages of having a less progressive tax system? Do you think our tax system has been too progressive? What are the, why would you actually try and reduce that progressivity? Yeah, so that's that's a really good point. So, for in first instance, the tax system has been becoming progressively more progressive for a number of years now, and it's because every time any tax reform is proposed, everything is analysed through the lens of does any benefit go to higher income earners, and if the answer is yes, then that's wrong. And and instead of the, the appropriate way for this to be analysed is across the whole system, is the system as a whole progressive? What we've sort of defaulted to is every individual measure has to always be more progressive. So the system has become more and more progressive over time. And what we've seen is that 
the percentage of people who are not net, net taxpayers has increased from, I think, slightly below 50% to more than 60% now. And so the, the tax burden is concentrating more and more on the, the, the top end of town, you know, the, the, this, this idea that the rich people aren't paying their fair share, um, I think, flies in the face of a lot of evidence. So there's that component of it. I think, you know, we need to reverse some of that excessive focus on, on vertical um, equity. I mean, I think there's also a horizontal equity argument that suggests that people who are working should be facing roughly similar tax rates. Um, I think that's a, a fairly obvious point. If, if you know you're a, a, if you're working a job and receiving an income, then your circumstances are at least comparable to um, people in, in, who are working, even if their incomes is slightly less. I think there's also an incentive argument here where what we're doing is bringing down the overall rate of taxation, um, trying to lower some of the um, disincentives at the top end, which, you know, we saw the, the highest income tax rates, I think, were lowered in the 90s to the level that they're at now. But since then, um, we've had a number of levies, the NDIS levy came in, the high income tax levy that, that Abbott introduced early in this um, tenure. So we've seen this sort of slow increase in the, the top rate um, aside from the mission bracket creep. Uh, and I think we're getting to a point now where people are facing you know, effective marginal tax rates in the 50s or higher. And um, I think there's a benefit to, to lowering that. So it's not so much, I mean, I think there are arguments why you want to reduce the progressivity in some respects. And I think what you actually really need to do is is lower the tax rates across the board. And this is one way to start that process. Right. And is that that's to encourage work effort and Innovation, well, well, entrepreneurship. Uh, yeah, so absolutely all of those things. But I think there's also a moral argument to this mm. uh, where, you know, the government is acting as if your income belongs to them and you should be grateful when they allow you to keep some portion of it. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, the analysis seems to be that uh, people who are receiving government benefits or low income deserve more of the higher income people's income than they do. And, and I mean, you know, I think there's a moral difference there. People who people should be entitled to receive as much of the benefit of their hard work as they can. And an attempt to redistribute um, uh, from the perspective of, of trying to sort of equalise incomes rather than trying to provide a safety net for people at the bottom end I think the more that our tax system tries to create that that equalisation um, for equity purposes, and the less that it focuses on on you know sort of the, the issue of absolute inequality, the the absolute poverty issues, the people at the bottom end, um, I, I think that's a mistake. I, I think people should be entitled to keep their income regardless of, of the income level they're at. Right, and uh, why do you? Uh, get stuck into the opposition, Simon. What did they do wrong in terms of uh, prosecuting or trying to get this uh, stage three tax cut up? Yeah. So, look, I mean, a lot of people talked about Labor's broken promises, and I'm happy to put the boot into them as well. But I think this situation, coalition had established a tax cut package over an absurd period of time 
they didn't really prosecute the case for stage three at any point. They stopped prosecuting the case for stage three well and truly before the 2022 election. Effectively, I think they adopted Labor's position that it was unfair mm-hmm. and they were just hoping to use political pressure here. But, but in all honesty, I mean, I, I don't think they, they were committed to that process. I think they passed the stage three cuts for largely political reasons, and I think they abandoned them the first chance they got. This was about trying to minimise the Teal vote in 2022. It was designed to try and bind high-income earners to the coalition in 2019. Um, it was designed to try and wedge Labor once they won office following 2022. And you know, then they just said, "Well, we, you know, we're not we're not going to bother even trying to really defend this. We'll just roll over. We'll allow them to to pass their legislation on on I think very flimsy grounds, and and that'll be that'll be it." The 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 thing is, the coalition had two fantastic opportunities to address this issue. So when they won the twenty nineteen election, they could have fast tracked the process for the tax cuts so that they occurred within the time frame of that government mm. so that you know the and this is pre-pandemic right pre-pandemic they could have said we're going to bring stage two forward to next year we're going to bring stage three forward to 2022 um, and at that point those tax reforms if they believed in they would have been law before the coalition they would have been in place before the coalition lost government and then so they didn't do that when the pandemic happened and they shoveled the equivalent of 275 300 billion dollars out of the door they threw money at every half-baked scheme that they could think of. You know, they, they had they doubled unemployment benefits, they had all this this pay for people who, who were, you know, out of work, which went to companies and talk about this as bad as you wanted. There was all of this stimulus everywhere. Right? They brought forward stage two. They had a massive deficit, but they did not touch the stage three tax cuts. They did not bring them forward at any point, even when the issue of deficits didn't matter at all. And I think they did that for political reasons and because they didn't believe in what they had proposed. And I think for that reason and the fact that they rolled over so quickly on it, I think they deserve almost as much blame as Labor does. Mm, yes, yes. Interesting point about the Teals. So they wanted to keep this to, uh, or they wanted to signal that they at least supported this idea of eventually having this uh, return of bracket creep to the higher income earners because there's, they, they're under threat from uh, these independents in yeah. the, uh, the you know seats uh, where there are a lot of wealthy residents, uh, such as uh, Allegra Spender's seat. Uh, is it Wentworth? Is that Wentworth, Double Bay yep. and all of that? Yeah. Yeah. I actually think this is a, this is a fascinating um, little sort of piece of, of political analysis. So I'll be, I'm keen to, to sort of chat our way through this. Um, you go back to the 1970s, right? And we look at the distribution of how people voted and overwhelmingly higher income people voted for the coalition and lower income people voted for Labor. And I think a lot of that had to do with the prominence of trade union movement, the class-based analysis that the left of politics was, was enmeshed in, right? What we saw in particular then as well was that the percentage of people who had a university degree was, was relatively small. See, because high-income earners for, for most of history have trended right, but university graduates have trended left. And so over time, as the percentage of university graduates increased and they went through the economy and became high-income earners, you see the 
higher income earner vote shifting further to the left. So these blue ribbon coalition seats in, in you know the sort of North Shore of Sydney and you know the sort of two rack and places in, in Melbourne that, that had voted for the coalition for a hundred years mm. was suddenly at risk now. You know, and this this trend has been going on for a decade or more. Like if you look at, at American political analysis, right, almost all the higher income earners and the areas where higher income earners vote Democrat. Almost none of them vote for the Republicans, um, and and that hadn't been the case as much in Australia. So we saw massive increase in university students starting to shift the higher income voters uh, further towards the left. Coalition sees this demographic shift. They see the shift in votes and they think to themselves, well, what am I going to do to fix this problem? And so what they did was say, okay, we're going to create a effectively a political wedge. We know that Labor will repeal these tax cuts. Almost certainly they get in office. Mm. We'll say the only way to get a $9,000 tax cut for you high-income earners in Wentworth and, and elsewhere and North Sydney and all those other electors is to vote for the coalition. But not just in the 2019 election. You've got to vote for the coalition 2022 election. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a lot of this was very cynically aimed at trying to, you know, provide a massive benefit to these higher-income um, people in these receipts. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why the coalition potentially rolled over on this so quickly is that Teal's picked up all of those seats nearly at the last election. And there's no real indication that they're all coming back to the coalition anytime soon. So the benefit to them of, of fighting on this score seems, I think, to be somewhat less. But it's a result of a demographic and political shift that's been in place for decades now. And it's just sort of manifested in the last, you know, really obviously in the last two elections. Yeah, 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 I think you're right there. Right, so I might ask about the structure of the tax system. I think you were uh, suggesting this before, and OECD data tend to back this up, that we're toward the top in terms of the reliance of our tax system on income tax, aren't we, relative to indirect taxes? Uh, do you have any thoughts on, you know, what would that, you know, are you advocating for a, a switch in the tax mix? What would that look like? What are your thoughts yeah. on that, Simon? So, look, I think that's fundamentally that's where things should go. Um, and and as the Australian state gets bigger, which seems to be inevitable at this point, unfortunately, again, despite our best efforts, as the Australian state gets bigger, um, we can't continue to rely on income tax to fund that growth in, um, in in government spending, and almost no other country, in certainly in the OECD, funds an enormous state primarily through income taxes. You know what we see is these these sort of European welfare states are they provide a lot of benefits, and a lot of benefits I think that go to the middle class, not just people at the bottom end. You know, there's a widespread of benefits in terms of social security, but those things are funded by um, large-scale indirect taxes. And Australia started down that path in 2000, but the GST was then hobbled because of the deal that had to be made to get it passed. So it was restricted from um, being uh, sort of offsetting all of the state income taxes, uh, state taxes that it was supposed to replace. Um, it's then proven quite difficult to increase. 
And I think one of the main reasons for that is, as Malcolm Turnbull found during the two weeks that he looked at this issue back in 2016, uh, the vast majority of um, benefit from a tax mix switch would have to be given back to people in comp- lower income people in compensation. So mm. um, you end up with relatively low revenue benefits um, from changing the tax mix because you end up having to provide even more um, benefit to, to people in the bottom half. And then, you know, you've got, a, you've got another problem there, which is that over time, as I said, I think I said before, over time, more and more people have become net tax recipients rather than net tax payers. Yeah. And there's no real prospect of that changing. So, uh, you know, a, a broad scale increase in an indirect tax would shift that, but that would then require someone to, to prosecute that argument. And that seems, I mean, that seems unlikely to me. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Yeah, so I'm just for clarity with this uh, these net uh, tax recipients or benefit beneficiaries of the tax system. So we're talking about you look at what people pay in tax and then what they get back from the federal government in terms of transfers. Uh, and it's not it, it's is it a lot of uh, what is often. Uh, criticised as middle-class welfare? Uh, yeah, so some of it is. I mean, a lot of it too, though, is um, in terms of, like, benefits from education and, and free healthcare and, and those sort of things. So there's, you know, like there's, you look at the concept of direct transfers and offset that against income, and that that takes a significant portion of um, the population out of paying tax, and especially with superannuation being tax-free in retirement, that knocks out a massive proportion of society. Um, and then you have a lot of, I mean, even at sort of top in, income quintile, you still see some government benefits, especially in terms of um, things like, you know, government support for schools and government support for, for healthcare and, and seniors' health cards, for example, um, those sort of benefits that, that, uh, it all adds up, right? And what we what we see is over time the number of people who are contributing net contributors um, is staying relatively constant. Um, the number of net recipients is increasing, and more and more people are going to have to shoulder the tax burden. You know, again, if you look back to the nineteen seventies, there's a dependency ratio of you know people who are in work to people who are not in work at something like um, seven to one, and now that's falling towards almost two to one, three to one. And that results in a huge um, increase in the burden on people who are working to fund those who are not. Right. So historically we had, yeah, I don't I can't remember the exact figure, was, but, you know, seven to one. So seven workers for every person who was retired and it's fallen to two to one or whatever it is. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's about, it's my recollection of lasting generation of borders that it's now gone under four, but it's going to head to three on potentially lower over time. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that alone is a real problem. It's, it's one of the reasons why we've been so concerned about an aging population. Um, and there's a whole bunch of factors that, that play into that. I mean, a lot of it comes down to increases in life expectancy, um, both at birth and life expectancy in retirement. So, you know, people were expected to live, I think it was about 10 or 12 years um, in retirement in the 70s. Now that figure's above 20. Um, and these are all years where, you know, people are, are healthy and, and consuming. I mean, it's a fantastic story as a society. We haven't yet figured out how to pay for it all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, the uh, particularly this NDIS, that's hugely costly, and yeah, we're struggling to oh, yeah. control the cost of that as well. On the the switch in the tax system toward more indirect taxes, I mean, Australia has a GST of ten percent, but it doesn't apply to fresh food. It doesn't apply to health and education. That's that deal you were referring yeah. to with the Democrats. Uh, the other thing is, yeah, the the other point you're making is there would be compensation. I mean, given the, the politics of it, they'd have to compensate lower income earners because uh, it's going to fall. Well, they that lower income earners, a higher proportion of their their income spent on consumption. And so therefore they're going yep. to, it's going to affect them more in uh, proportional terms. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And I think, so the bargain that's been made in, in Europe in particular is effectively that they've been willing to accept higher taxes on the middle class in exchange for a broader-based welfare system. And, I mean, uh, it's not an explicit deal, obviously, but mm. that was basically how all this was, was done. And it wasn't done in the last 10 or 15 years. This is a you know, process that's been in place for decades now. And what we have is a portion of Australian politics is effectively trying to create the spending half of that deal, but funded by taxation on only the quote-unquote rich. Mm. So, and it's, it creates a fundamental mismatch. The, the, you know, we keep getting given this idea that you can get more from government on average than you give to government on average, and that simply can't be true for the bulk of the population. Um, that's a, a, a systemic debt problem if if that's the way that things are organised. But we keep being told that, you know, for example, we can the NDIS can grow at 14% a year and Social Security can continue to grow and pensions can be indexed to wages and all of these things can happen. Um, and the rich and multinational corporations are somehow paid for it all. And I, just don't, I, I think that's a very short-sighted and unrealistic approach to a tax system. But, you know, we've had a number of attempts um, increasingly uh, futile in the last, I would say, 15, 15 years to reform, to undertake a wholesale reform in the tax system, which would allow us to move a lot of pieces at once rather than try to move an individual piece. Yeah. And those attempts have been frustrated Time and time again, I mean, you know, you only have to look at the the Henry Tax Review, um, where I think the Rudd government cherry picked one of about seventy something recommendations, and you know, we had Joe Hockey attempted his own tax review, and I don't even think that got to um, the point of making recommendations before it was cancelled. 
yeah, that's because, yeah, Turnbull came in and uh, cancelled it. It was a bit, yeah, it was really, it was actually, I think they were doing a good job because I was, some of my old Treasury colleagues were, uh, Roger Brake and Graham Davis were running that and uh, I'd often catch up with them when they were in Brisbane. I thought yeah. they were doing a great job. They were going around the country, talking to people and, and finding out what they thought about the tax system. But when Turnbull got in, he well, wasn't interested right. Sadly, yeah, and I think that's—I mean—that's sort of part of the background reason why why I was so harsh on the coalition in relation to this tax reform package because I think, you know, they had an opportunity to reform spending through the Commission of Audit and they bungled that because the West Australian Senate rerun in twenty fourteen. They had an opportunity with the tax reform process and then their their leadership spills, you know, as as adequately um, captured in this this recent ABC program nemesis. Uh, fundamentally undercut a whole suite of policy reforms across a number of different areas. We, we had this supposedly um, broad tax reform package that was introduced in sort of you know, 2017, 2018. Um, but a, a lot of that is now not going to happen. And you say, you know, when was the last time we had a substantive, like a real look at, at the tax system? It's now, what, 15 years? Yeah, yeah, that'd be right. Since, uh, hence, yeah, the Henry Review, which would have been started in, yeah, it must have been in 08 because I remember contributing to some of just one of their early documents. I can't remember. Yeah, so it must have started 08, 09, 10. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's because Kevin Rudd, when he came into office, yeah. started two fairly substantive processes. One was the review on welfare spending mm. um, in 2009 that resulted in the um, effectively locking in a massive increase in the age pension for, for decades on end. And the Henry Review was sort of the other bookend at that. But we ended up with the locked-in spending and, and the tax reform sort of got abandoned. And now what we see is um, people who are trying to increase the size of the state and increase revenue are effectively trying to pick off um, individual tax measures one at a time. So, you know, we see the push having overturned the stage three tax cuts a week ago we're now already on to negative gearing and capital gains tax reforms. And, you know, I saw a, a tweet today from, from a researcher at a competing think tank that effectively said, you know, none of these reforms are going to have a big impact on house prices. We should just do them so we can get the revenue. I'm like, I mean, I think that, that sort of explains a lot about how we've got to where we've gotten on, on our tax reform process. Yeah, yeah, I think I saw the same thing on LinkedIn. If it was from Brendan uh, Coates, it, it was. Brendan. Yeah, yeah, Brendan's. I've had Brendan on the show before, so Brendan's an old colleague yeah. of mine. But yeah, I mean, Grattan's got a particular view on uh, what they see as uh, you know excessively generous concessions uh, to landlords and and also uh, on super. So I mean, that's uh, like broadly, what do you think about all of that, Simon? I mean the like if you look at the tax expenditure statement from the Treasury, they will be reporting uh, significant uh, amounts of of money uh, in in well, they're not tax expenditures, but they they report the concession for negative, yeah, or the deductions for negative gearing, and then they report tax expenditures on things like super. I mean, what are your thoughts on those items and uh, the the logic of uh, making changes there? Well, I, I think. A number of those measures are deeply unrealistic. Mm. They are effectively issued. So, you know, look at the numbers that are uh, applied with superannuation concessions, and they assume that you'll pay full marginal rates on 
your contributions, you'll pay full marginal rates on your earnings in the fund and you'll pay full marginal rates on your earnings at the back end. There's no retirement system in the world that is set up even vaguely like that. Yeah. Right? So so this idea that there's this massive honeypot of people, uh, of money that can be taken from, I mean, if you apply punitive taxation rates to saving, and yeah, you might be able to get some, some revenue from that, but that doesn't make it a good idea. And it doesn't make it a realistic um, uh, comparison. And so, you know, when you see it, it applied to a more realistic benchmark, the cost of those concessions fall dramatically. Um, I think there are a number of reasons why super should have been uh, reformed substantially during the last term of, of government. I would have, I, I did oppose quite strongly the increase in the compulsory contributions because I didn't think that was a good thing for people, um, especially when you know, incomes were growing at such a low rate, why the government would force you to contribute that income to a, effectively an industry super fund. Seemed like a bad idea to me, um, but it, it went ahead anyway. Um, but I, I see a lot of these tax measures and this, the tax expenditure statement and the idea that you know this measure costs X billion dollars is set against such an unrealistic benchmark that it, it creates an expectation that you know that people would be able to to just pull in this this massive increase in revenue. So well, I mean, what's the alternative? We have no discount to, to capital gains to reflect that that returns are impacted by inflation. We we have um, no ability to to offset losses against um, other income. I mm. mean. These are non-controversial measures in most tax systems, um, and they are—they seem to be controversial here because we analyse them at least in part because we analyse them against this unrealistic standard that says they cost way more than they actually do. Yeah, yeah. On the deduction of losses against, uh, you can deduct it from other—you know—reduce your taxable income if you lose money in your rental property, which is what we call negative gearing i mean historically they did try to get or get get rid of negative gearing or let you only like reduce your uh, rental income to to zero so oh, sorry that they are well yeah so if you if you made a loss you couldn't then use that to um yeah reduce your other taxable income so labor income so you pay less tax you could yeah you could you could effectively pay no tax on your rental income, but they wouldn't let you get a benefit or a tax. Yeah. The- yeah, so that's that's the idea. Um, but they did reduce, get rid of it in the 80s, and there are all these headlines about, you know, it's causing problems in the Sydney rental market and there's uh, rents yeah. are going up. You can't get a, a property with landlords were withdrawing. So, I, I mean, my feeling is a Chalmers is probably bright enough not to go down that path and he's probably i think he's talk you know he talks to paul keating regularly so i expect keating's probably uh, yeah. advising him on that not to go down that path well, and 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 rents have been increasing enormously right yeah. so why would you take a, a, a chance on that but uh, i mean just on the fundamental principle here right uh, so if you want to quarantine your income from property so that you can assess your losses against that income that's fine Right, but what you can't do, or you shouldn't be able to do, then, is assess positively geared property on top of 
wage income. Mm. So right now, all of the like if you make if your if your property makes a a gain, that is taxed at your full marginal rate. The converse of that is if you make a loss, then it's deducted from your tax at your full marginal rate. Yeah. Now I, I'm okay if you want to say, well, look, you know, rental property income should be quarantined, so you get a second, you know, like you get a, a tax free threshold, and you pay, mm-hmm. you know, like if you make make a thousand dollars a month, you pay no tax on that. You want to do that? That's fine, right? I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is saying, on the one hand, if you make a gain, we're going to tax that as much as we possibly can. On the other hand, if you make a loss, then you just got to you've got to eat it, right? I mean, that mm. just seems like fundamentally unfair approach to it, where the government wins no matter what. And you know, I'm not a big fan of the government winning no matter what. <laughs> Exactly. So yes, uh, yeah. There's a and yeah. It's a you know it, it's going to heat up again. It is heating up that debate, and yet yeah. I think the 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 logic behind what's called negative gearing is is is, uh, is lost. It's absent from that debate. Sadly, yeah, well, it just and, becomes yeah. Yeah, and I mean, look, the the Henry Review looked into this and proposed what seemed like a relatively good solution because there is an issue with different types of saving being taxed different ways. Mm. So, you know, there's some things that are very incentivized, like, for example, owning your own home. There are some things that are strongly, but not as strongly incentivized, like superannuation and probably um, investing in, in, you know, um, in retail um, property. And there's some things that are highly disincentivized, which is a lot of other types of saving. And if you wanted to equalize a lot of that stuff in a way that reflected um, the, you know, some of the risk profiles and the longevity of holding those those instruments, that'd be fine. But that's not the debate that we're having. We're not talking about having a coherent and fair tax system across the board. We're just saying that this one thing that we cherry picked, this looks unfair to me. Therefore, we should get rid of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's the debate we're having for sure. What about um, resources, Simon? Have you thought about that? Because I mean, one of the things you often hear is, "Oh, we haven't, we're letting these mining companies rip us off, and we're not taxing them properly, or the royalties aren't high enough. We're not taxing their super profits, and we've missed the opportunity that the Norwegian, you know, the Norwegians set up this huge sovereign wealth fund." That's worth I don't know however many hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, every Norwegian. It's it is mind blowing. Um, what do you think of that? The what do you think about resources taxation? Have we missed yeah. an opportunity there? So look, I'm very skeptical of anyone that says the word super profits because I think super profits are defined as any amount of money that I think is big enough that I could take. <laughs> um, so I, I don't like that concept. I mean, I think. Is there an argument that the states have systemically underpriced the royalties that, that they have charged in order to incentivize people to set up mining operations in their state, particularly up where you are? Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's probably right. The states could have charged way more for their resources than they did. Mm. They chose not to do that. That's a choice that they get to make. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm sort of somewhat. I always get a, a, a pause when I see a proposal that federal government take even more revenue from things that were traditionally revenue for the states. So, you know, I, I think if there's an issue with underpricing those royalties, then the states should increase their royalties. 
And that would result in them having, them having some more revenue that they could spend. And, and I mean, when it comes to deductions and this idea that there are companies that are, are paying no tax and therefore that's unfair. So offsetting your tax liability against past losses, which is what's happening with most of these mining enterprises, is completely non-controversial and not a drama really of any kind. So if your operation makes losses for 10 years while you are searching for mineral deposits and then you eventually find one, you get to offset those 10-year losses against your first year of, of profits and you know you have to tax a profit, not a loss. So that's a that's a you know that's and that accounts for so much of, of these super profits that are being offshored or, or you know that people are, are worried about. I mean, it's just offsetting tax against previous losses. There is an issue around structuring of global tax operations mm. in a way that minimizes your taxable liability. However, as Kerry Packer once famously said, if you're not minimizing your tax, you're uh, you're an idiot. Everyone minimizes their tax. So if the system is set up to allow people to minimize their tax, they will. There's a lot of smart tax lawyers and accountants who can set things up in a way that minimizes those those taxes. And that's being done completely legally. Um, and if you want to change that more, then, then go ahead. But you're going to struggle with the fact that you've got to force other countries to play ball with you on that score. And if you raise your domestic taxation of, com- of global companies too much, they'll all disappear. Yeah, and- yeah, that, that's one of the concerns we're having. I mean, I'm all, I'm all for making sure that these companies aren't, uh, you know, they're not doing things that are, are sketchy and they're actually, they yeah. are abiding by the law. And the Australian government has introduced measures to, to ensure that. There's work at OECD, the BEPS initiative, whatever it is. I was just thinking about that point you make about discouraging uh, in investment and that, yeah, that is a risk. And, uh, you know, historically, yeah, we, we, like Queensland, for example, where I am, and you're talking about uh, Queensland, uh, yeah, I mean, the Treasury at the time, they probably did have, they set really competitive royalty rates to attract the investment. And we were after the investment to develop these export industries, which have been hugely beneficial economically for our regions, for the state budget. And that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so too. And I guess we've had this... Competitive federalism. Yeah, yeah. And we've had this uh, controversy recently where the uh, the state treasurer, um, it was a bit of a surprise, uh, Cameron Dick, uh, you know, introduced this more progressive royalty system for coal and now we've got the highest... Uh, royalty rates for coal in the world, um, and you know it was almost <coughs> motivated by being a super profits tax. And now the the resources sector is saying, and BHP has come out and said, "Oh, this is yeah, th- we're not going to invest in in Queensland anymore." Other companies have have said similar things. If, I'll have to put some links in the show notes to make sure I get the the, the details right. But then you know the government's going to go. Well, they would say that. I mean, that's. That's uh, you know that's big mining, so uh, you know we're not going to yeah. listen to them. We're well, just gonna- <laughs> yeah, and I mean ultimately, right? One, because I'm a big believer in competitive federalism. Yeah, states have a right to run that experiment. Yeah, if you think they would, they would just say that, then do it. See mm. what happens. Yeah, you know, but but where are the consequences, right? That's that's the thing that, that that annoys me a lot of the debates about state 
um, tax emissions and state, you know, state budget issues. The way that the GST distribution is set up, it actually discourages states from taking those initiatives because if they do the right thing and they create all of this additional growth, they lose some of their GST distribution and they're effectively offset, you know, for, for doing the right thing economically. Um, you're far better off to just, you know, as the West Australians do, just take the uh, the aeroplane down to Canberra and say, please fill up my pot with a, a lot of money, Mr. Prime Minister, because we have been um, unfairly denied mm. our fair share of GST revenue. Um, and, and, you know, that without wanting to get too sort of jargony technical about it, that vertical fiscal imbalance between the states and the federal government causes a lot of efficiency issues. Yeah, um, I think in the way that 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 we deliver, like in our tax system, in the way that we deliver our services, and so you know, I'd be a big fan of of fixing. Like, if it, if there was to be a, a large scale tax reform, aside from lowering the overall tax burden, the biggest thing we could do is shift a whole bunch of revenue options to the states, uh, allow them to compete with each other for business and growth. Um, but remove some of that vertical fiscal imbalance and stop the uh, the begging game. Yeah, absolutely. Stop the blame game. Stop them. Yeah, saying, "Oh, we don't have the money. The federal government's got all the money. Give us some more money." Yeah, well, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's it, it manifests across so many yeah. areas, right? Have a look at have a look at what it's done to defence policy in the last fifteen years. You know that because of the South Australian investment in in their defence industry and the need for governments of both sides to buy votes in South Australia, mm. there's this constant pressure to spend defence procurement dollars in South Australia. Oh yeah, and and yeah. that results in suboptimal procurement decisions yeah. all the time. No doubt about that. Okay. We've had a wide-ranging discussion about the yeah. Australian tax system, Simon. To wrap up, uh, what are your what would be your broad parameters or broad themes of a genuine tax reform? Okay. So, I mean, I think the first thing that we should do is rule a line under Bracket Creek somewhere and say, this is going to be it for Bracket Creek. If you want to increase taxes, you have got to get people to vote for it, not mm. just have it happen automatically over, over and over again. And then I would love for us to attempt to resolve some of the efficient taxes in the economy, particularly some of those leftover state taxes that that were still around from um, the GST uh, switch back in, in 2000. I, I think there's still some, some sort of workers' compensation insurance and other things at the state level that could be gotten rid of. Um, but, you know, we always talk about the stamp duty for land tax switch. Um, yeah. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue with that um, overall. I'd love to see us lower company tax rates substantially to attempt to increase um, business investment into Australia. I'd be taking a company tax rate down to 20% or lower. And then I think we need, before we were to do anything more substantive than that, we'd need expenditure reform so that we could go about reducing the tax burden substantially. And, and part of that, I mean, a big part of that, I think, is getting control of what's happening in the NDIS um, yeah. and elsewhere, uh, reforming and, and sort of shifting the debate around things like education and healthcare away from how much money can I spend to what am I getting for, for my um, investment. And then also around, you know, around infrastructure. You spend so much money on infrastructure that's, that's just horribly inefficient 
um, and poorly designed, managed, and, and and operated. And we could, and because a lot of it sits off the budget, we, it, it's not visible. But I'm sure that we could do things a lot better than we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can certainly do things better than that uh, Snowy 2.0 project where we've got a, a boring machine stuck in the tunnel. Uh, what a <laughs> that's an absolute debacle. Yeah, well, and we're so you'll be interested to know, your listeners will be interested to know, we've just stood up a program on, on energy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the big focuses of that program is to bring some transparency to the investment decisions that are being made by government in the, in the clean energy space. Mm. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a climate change, any climate change person by any means, but I'm a big believer in government doing things in accordance with the rules and the principles, right? I don't think you get to, to skirt the rules because of these uh, desire to have a particular political outcome. And I think a lot of that's happening in energy, so that's a big deal for us. Yeah, very good. Okay, Simon. Thanks awesome. So, thanks so much for your time. It's been uh, it's been terrific. Good to catch up with a yeah. CIS colleague and to uh, yeah chat about uh, the big issues of the day. So uh, terrific. Thanks again. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.